0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is kind of like our guide for the Christian cosmopolitan soul with a grace-infused passion for life, to the content of the interwebs as we see them. For the week. In a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zall and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of another weekends. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down and talking with John Newton, Episcopal Priest and author, about his new book, Falling into Grace: Exploring Our Inner Life with God. And so I give you my conversation with John Newton. Welcome to the Mockingcast. For the first time, uh, John Newton, who's written a book called Falling into Grace, Exploring Our Inner Life with God. Now, John, you're from Houston, Texas.
1: I am. Well, I'm from Beaumont, Texas originally, um, which is a little bit east of Houston, but been in Houston for the last five and a half years, so starting to feel like home. And you work
0: for the diocese there for the bishop?
1: I do. I, I, um, I'm in my second role with the diocese. I took a job there in 2011 as the canon for Christian formation and was recently asked to step into a different role about nine months ago as his chief of staff.
0: That sounds like a wrestling subtitle. Here we have the canon of Christian formation, John Newton. You know, like it sounds like a subtitle, like canon, <laughs> like you know, you've know, you got the canons, but yeah, Episcopalians have great titles. And you guys, uh, you're not, you're not underwater there, are you? Because there were some floods in Houston. Did you weather that storm?
1: Uh, so I, yeah, I I did weather that storm. Um, you know, we're doing all right. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very, we're, we're very kind of lucky where I live in the, my neighborhood. Um, we did quite fine, but a lot of people actually uh, still underwater and lots of damage done. So it was, they said it was a 500-year flood. Um, I, I didn't experience that, but a lot of people did.
0: Yeah, I, well, I'm glad that you guys, uh, you, you you weren't um, arc building or anything like that. Um, so, tell me about the, the story of this book, because this is a book, when I was reading it, I thought, you know, this is a book that I've actually been looking for that I didn't know was written. Because I feel like there's a really, in certain pockets of the church today, and I'm not showing the Episcopal Church, all over um, uh, the church in North America, there's a kind of renewal around a grace-oriented theology, like a gospel, a grace-oriented, uh, you know, it's it's not you and God cooperating together for your own journey, but it's, it's a unilateral uh, you know, work of God's love and grace. And then there's also a bunch of people that are into spiritual practices and the inner life and things like this. But generally those two people butt heads a lot, right? Because the people that are, have sort of yeah. this grace-oriented theology are afraid of the legalism of practices and do-it-yourself spirituality. And the people that are into practices – are you know are thinking? Well, this is all just navel gazing and you know consumeristic spirituality. But you've you've somehow seemed to wed these these two movements in the church in this book in a way that I think is really interesting and unique.
1: Oh I man, Scott, I really appreciate you saying that because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, so my background—I I wouldn't say that I'm <laughs> I'm new to to grace by any means, but when it comes to these kind of two paradigms you're talking about. Um, I started out very much in the spiritual practice kind of mental model and really kind of gave lip service to grace. Um, and so I wrote a book and that came out in 2014 called New Clothes, Putting on Christ and Finding Ourselves. And it's really, it's a classic book on spiritual practice. I mean, it kind of lays out what the Christian gospel is and then kind of gives you some practices by which you can root your life in that. And what I realized in writing that book, Uh, It's something that I think I always intuitively knew, which is that spiritual practice is fine, but it's also something that the ego, um, the idol of self, can easily latch on to in order to build yourself up, to make yourself feel like a a special, worthwhile human being. Uh, And before you know it, um, and and maybe this is an exaggeration, but maybe not, Uh, before you know it, you're kind of standing with the Pharisee in the temple saying, Uh, Lord God, I thank you that I'm not like um, that guy. And then kind of looking at all the various ways that you build up your spiritual life. And so what I wanted to do with this new book uh, is write a book that kind of was less descriptive, less prescriptive, more descriptive, um, that actually um, kind of talks about what does it mean to give up your life and to relinquish control um, as the fruit of God's one-way love entering your life.
0: Yeah. I always think that that's like a, the descriptive move. Like I, I always think thick description is better for people, uh, spiritually, rhetorically, however, than, than prescription. Cause once somebody says, do this, I don't want to do it. Or once somebody says, don't walk on the ground." This is why I think like the irony of our political culture today, right? The more people say, don't vote for Donald Trump, the more people go, well, I'm going to vote for Trump. You can't tell me who to vote for. So I think that that's a beautiful w- approach To the inner life. Now you say that it's, this book is an invitation to let yourself fall. It's a reminder that you're already home free from the beginning. And any fall can always be a fall into grace. And that like getting closer to God, you say, is like saying, I want to get closer to my own skin.
1: Yeah. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, I, I, mean, uh, I mean that, and I, I think you quoted what, what I just said, I mean that we're home free from the beginning. And so if you write a book from the perspective that every aspect of our life, every aspect of our world is already reconciled to God, uh, that uh, as Paul says you know, uh, in, in Acts, that in God we live, move, have our being— um, that we're already safe, that there's nothing to do but really to have our eyes open to what already is, what's always been, and what always shall be, um, that we're surrounded by mystery and beauty and grace, and that uh, so often we think the spiritual journey is about going somewhere, right? We want to start at point A and end up at point B. Uh, but it kind of changes how we talk about the spiritual life if we're home free from the beginning, that all of a sudden uh, Jesus opening the eyes of the blind uh, it's a much better metaphor for the spiritual life than us journeying somewhere.
0: Yeah, that's you also. Uh, there's you also say that you know, this is kind of another thing that I think people would say about people that are into practice or really into discipleship language. Uh, you know, they're wary of a sort of grace-oriented theology because, well, what about following Jesus? But you say that Jesus' way of descent is about unlearning this avoid pain at all cost behavior that yeah. He doesn't offer us relief from our symptoms, but rather a cure, uh, which only can happen if we learn to embrace suffering as a grace and a gift. There's wow. no, simply no other way. We experience resurrection only in proportion to our willingness to die. So you have a sort of grace-infused Bonhoeffer
1: here, it sounds like. Yeah, that's, that's, I'd never thought of it that way. But yeah, I mean, because so often, um, I'm always a little suspicious of our motives, Scott. And so You know, if and not that it's evil. I don't want to say spiritual practice is evil. It's evil. Don't do it. Don't do it. But a lot of times what we're actually trying to do when we say we're trying to follow Jesus is that we're actually trying to tame the chaos and trying to take control of our own lives and to avoid that very pain that's meant uh, to be that experience of grace. Um, You know, one of the things that I noticed, and when my eyes were open to this, I was kind of shocked, Um, that all the language that we use uh, around the spiritual life in the church, it's all ascent language. It's all climbing language. So we talk about growing spiritually. Uh, I was part of Young Life growing up. They told me to live above reproach. Um, St. Benedict even talked about climbing the ladder of humility, which is kind of perfect, right? You can kind of climb the corporate ladder Monday through Saturday and then go to church and climb this, great ladder of humility, because there's something about our culture that loves climbing, but, you know, Jesus never talked about climbing. Um, He talked about relinquishment, about surrender, uh, about dying, and he promised that that was our very salvation, life, and resurrection. And that changes the way we talk about faith and spiritual practice, I think.
0: You know, when Karl Barth first read Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship, he said there's a wee whiff of the monastery in this. And by that, Bart meant it critically, like, "Hey, there's a, there's, this is a lot of climbing, human striving language." So I think that you've managed to sort of write some things about discipleship that does not smell like the monastery for Bart. <laughs> so, which yeah. I, which I mean that as a sincere compliment because I think that that's, again, there's not a lot of people doing that kind of theological reflection for the church, especially um out there today.
1: Yeah, and you know, one of the things that you said, um. Uh, about like when someone says, do the spiritual practice, how you want to do the opposite. Um, that's true. Uh, the other response, though, is to do it, but to do it from a place of deep fear. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I want to say that I do believe that um, our lives, that that our lives can be a conduit of, of grace and blessing for others. I just don't think that happens uh, whenever we kind of take the reins of our life and engineer that process ourselves. Um, you know, so I, I think that you get a result of being a conduit through which grace, mercy, and love flow to other people, um, whenever you know that in your own life. And, and I think that's kind of the paradox of the journey of descent.
0: Yeah, I totally, I really, I agree with you. And, you know, the other thing that I think you bring together in this book in an interesting way, like you have people, it seemingly, you know, when people go to seminary or people are on, you know, vestries or. Uh, elder boards, you know, it's, you got the people that are, Hey, they're the pastoral care people and we got to take care of people and, you know, tend to hearts and souls. And you got the evangelism people, right? (laughs) That, Hey, no, we got to, We've got to, you know, we've got to pound the streets for Jesus. We got to get out there and bear witness. And we almost seem like these things are, we put them against each other and we actually say, well, if you're a really good pastoral care person, you're probably not going to be much of an evangelist. And if you're a really good evangelist, you're probably not going to be a good caregiver, but you, you, you unite these things and you think a grace oriented evangelism comes out of knowing how grace has penetrated the depth of your own uh, story. And then through that awareness and empathy that, you know, with your own story going and seeing uh, the gracious needs and the heart cries out in other people's stories.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly right. And, and, you know, and, and I would ask anyone listening to think about their own life and to think about when they've known actually the love of God and the grace of God the most in their own life. And I, I write a little bit about it in the book. You know, whenever you write a book, you have to make a choice about how vulnerable you actually want to be and how much of your story you really want to tell. But um, I know in my own life that um, the, the way that I know grace, mercy, and love uh, has been not through my great success, but through some of the most tragic and painful things that I've experienced. But that's been the very moment that I've known love and grace and had the capacity to extend it to other people. Uh, and and I think that's where I think that's the root of evangelism Scott um, I think it's the root of finding our purpose in life I think it's the root of making a difference um, being crushed <laughs> uh, being crushed uh, and knowing tremendous love salvation and grace in the midst of that experience I think that is the soil out of which everything we love flowers evangelism relationship. Um, Church growth, I mean, whatever it is you're after, I think that's the soil out of which it all is birthed. You also, it's almost like you sort of written a book here,
0: like uh, kind of engaging all the sacred cows, a lot of wings of the church. Because you also, I mean, there's a lot written today in religious literature about purpose, Purpose purpose-driven life, purpose-oriented life, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven church that gives you the purpose for your life, all these, you know, and, and there's all sorts of, from all different kinds of places. And you actually take a little bit of a different take on purpose and how you actually say that if we need a big purpose, we'll end up living a small life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So all those books that you just said, and I I don't want to, I don't want to critique them. um, And I haven't read them. And so, but a lot of times when people talk about a purpose driven life, um, they might as well just, you know, uh, insert the word control, uh, a controlled life, you know, where they kind of engineer things. And what I want to do is talk about purpose as something that flows from the scars of our life. Um, you know, I, I tell the story uh, in the book, but um, father Gregory Boyle, who wrote tattoos in the heart tells the story of a guy named Pablo, who um, essentially, you know, he's a gang member trying to get out of gang life and uh, his mom beat him every single day. Uh, and so he wore three t-shirts because uh, two t-shirts were needed to soak up the blood. And, um, And, you know, whenever he told his story, and and of course, kids made fun of him, they laughed at him uh, for wearing three t-shirts. But whenever he tells his story, um, he says that he used to be ashamed, you know, he wore the three t-shirts to cover his wounds. And he he wore the t-shirts because he was ashamed of his wounds. But now he knows that to live his life with meaning and purpose, he has to welcome those wounds, because how else could he ever be a source of healing to other human beings? And to me, that's the wisest thing I've ever heard, that actually whenever we welcome that pain, that suffering, that we don't try to hide it with spiritual practice or religiosity uh, or anything else, but whenever we kind of stand naked before one another with those wounds, that that's actually what opens up a purpose. And it's not big. Um, You know, big is always our ego's concern. Um, It can be the smallest thing in the world. And out of that small thing, great life can flow.
0: You know, the, the one, another thing, the last thing I want to just hit on the book, and there's lots here, and I, again, I, it's this, this is uh, exploring our inner life with God. All of our all of our um, listeners, please pick this book up. I mean, it's a great read. And also uh, Sarah Condon did a review of it on our website, so our listeners can find that for a more in-depth review. But uh, another thing that you, you, you talk in the end of the book about resurrection. By the way, you very uh, candidly admit to your hypochondria.
1: <laughs> i think i'm dying right now scott
0: <laughs> my wife is a nurse practitioner and she said that you know there's that day in your training where you're, you're learning all these uh, pathologies and you're, you're convinced for like a week you have them all yeah. and 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 you, and you everything seems like a symptom and then you know she said most of you and if you're going to stay in medicine you probably get over it but yeah i mean so i thought that was a candid admission but yeah you talk a lot about the re- the resurrection and fear of kind of being like walking dead or living dead like our our fascination with zombies. Mm-hmm. It's because so many people feel like uh, living dead or walking dead today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think the proliferation of, of kind of, you know, a culture that kind of keeps like, you know, consistently producing these images of zombies and the living dead, it it, it almost makes us, we're a little ambivalent about resurrection. We're scared to die. And yet all we can imagine is our current life writ large projected into the future that we're these zombies Um, but I think that, uh, what what I try to do in the book, um, uh, and, and I want to say I firmly, firmly believe, uh, in our future resurrection and in the bodily resurrection, but I wanted to tap into what does that look like now? Um, what does it mean for that future? It's like reverse time travel. What does it mean for the future to come to us and for us to begin living that life now? Not as something we have to do, uh, not as something that God uh, says we must do. Um, uh, not even as something that we're invited to do, uh, but as something that flows out of us whenever we embrace this journey of descent, because all of a sudden, uh, it doesn't look like the zombie movie anymore.
0: So we're shadows, not of our past selves, but of our future selves. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because another kind of criticism of, hey, if you take this uh, sort of grace-infused, grace-centered theology, you're not going to have anything to say about ethics or or things in the world. But you actually say the number one sign of getting the gospel, especially in this resurrection lens, is a commitment to nonviolence.
1: Yeah, that's the fruit. Uh, A a greater and amplified sense of relationships with other people and a life of refused violence is how I put it. Um, And here's the thing. Um, you don't get a life of refused violence by pursuing it, because there's something about that pursuit that is inherently violent. <laughs> Nonviolence is the fruit of the gospel, but the moment you try to engineer it for yourself, you lose the very thing that you seek.
0: So, in all things, it seems like uh, it's kind of it, that the mode of, of, of a grace uh, animated life is, is more of receptivity than, uh-huh. act, than activity than, than activity.
1: Yes. I mean, that's that. I mean, thank you. That's that's the word that I'm looking for. It's receptivity. Um, It it is um, a heart open to that one way love of God that's poured into it perpetually um, in all seasons. And, you know, here's the thing. We struggle for language. Um, I mean, the best that I did in the book that I tried was using the language of willingness instead of willfulness. Even that falls short of the reality. But it's just receiving um, that love poured into our lives at all seasons. And that's what kind of bears the fruit that I hope to talk about in the book.
0: You know, uh, a Mockingbird, a lot of us are uh, fans of a guy named Frank Lake, who was a great psychiatrist. And Lake says that, uh, you know, if you look at your humanity as as a container uh, Hmm. where something good ought to be found, uh, then when, when the bottom gets knocked out of it, it's lousy. But if we're not meant to be containers, but channels for the life and energy of God himself, that, that what ruins a bucket makes it a great channel. Yeah. And that's just, the kind of spirit I had from, you know, your whole book. And I, I really, again, thank you for it. And I, I commend it uh, to all our listeners. Cause I think, again, it really fills a sorely needed hole in, in the conversations across, across the church in every denomination today.
1: I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, Scott, what, what I want falling into grace um, to do uh, is not to give people um, a new life plan. Um, I, just, I, I just want them to be overcome um, by a big view of God's love for them and to give themselves a little breathing room and space and grace um, for something new, to, to receive something maybe that they haven't received before. And to trust that something's going to flow out of them as a result, to be a channel, as she said. Um, um, That's exactly what what I I hope for.
0: Well, thanks for talking with us today. And I can't wait to have you on again when you write your next book.
1: Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. That, That means a lot to me. Take care.
0: Welcome back again to yet another conversation about Another Weekends with Sarah Condon in Texas. Hey. And David all the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird, coming to us from Virginia.
2: Yo. Hey, everyone. <laughs> His hair is super animated, by the way.
3: My hair today? <laughs> 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 Awesome. We'll just have to leave that to people's imaginations yes, to right. figure
2: out what that means.
0: Yeah. <laughs> before we delve into the chock full of content version, what's well, always chock full of great content, but before we delve into the contents of another weekend, we got a couple things to talk about. One exciting thing, law, go, law and gospel, which if you have not read it, if you're a listener and you appreciate Mockingbird and kind of the theological and, you know, imaginative lens, which we take towards faith and life. This is a great summary, just kind of of uh, a great uh, Reformation Christian truth about, you know, how law and gospel work out in our lives. And we've got a study guide. If you've already read it, we've got a study guide that is really helpful if you're using this book for like groups or things like that, which is a perfect, it's a perfect book, I'd say, right, David, for kind of group study.
3: I think it is the perfect book for all group study of all time. <laughs> I, think, I think there has never been a better group study book produced, and maybe never will be. That's my <laughs> promise to you.
0: Creation is waiting for this moment to be unveiled. All creation is loaning <laughs> for this group study book to be revealed. So you can get that on our website. And how much is it, David?
3: It is 100% free of charge. Thus, like the grace of God, it is free. But unlike, unlike the book Law and Gospel, yeah. <laughs> Law and Gospel
0: cost you. But the study guide, it's just a cliff that's anyway, so it's all you need. Just kidding.
3: There's also a leader, leader's guide, so it's, it's worked pretty hard on it, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. And lots of people have been doing it actually as a group study and it's found it to be something that works in that, uh, but have also asked for this. So this is sort of specifically an answer to something someone had asked for. And uh, here it is.
2: Yeah, we used it this spring at Josh's church, just as a F. wig. We used it for the whole church, and then I used it for the women's Bible study at the same time, and it was awesome. So use it in lots of different ways. It's great.
0: Ask and you shall receive. Somebody asks, and they got it. It's available. And also, uh, you know, I, this is, this podcast, we've been going since November, and it's been a fun thing to do. It sounds like we're going to end it right now. And now I'm leaving the. Yeah, it sounds like, <laughs> it's been good. I had a good time. It. I've had a great right now but we've had a great run so far and you know, our listenership has really increased. It's, you know, our number of downloads has, on average has just about um, doubled, uh, in the, in the, yeah, I think it has doubled in just the few short months we've been doing it. And it's not a a thing that like, uh, it it doesn't cost zillions of dollars to do, but it does, there are expenses. And one of the things that we needed was a better computer to kind of process and edit. And I want to thank two donors, uh, Edward Hockstra and David Babco, who donated some money that we could get an iMac, which if you could see it, it's here in my basement office. It's the conduit for our grace-infused conversation, (laughs) and it's awesome. And if it was gold, I'd make it into a calf and bow to it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It gleams. It gleams.
0: Unfortunately, my laptop is gold. My phone is gold. My iPad is gold. This is not gold. So... Uh, so I'm not tempted to worship it. But no, I, it is a really uh, w- with great appreciation. We really thank them because it's really uh, the podcast is really, again, I, I was surprised uh, at the New York City conference, how many people uh, listen to it and it becomes part of their weekly rhythm. And, and we can't do it without certain tech things. And it's been a learning process. And, and that gift that David Babcock and Edward Hoekstra gave uh, has definitely helped us continue and, you know, make the quality of the thing uh, in, improved and increased. So, for gentlemen, if you're listening, I salute and thank you.
3: Mm. Uh, ditto, ditto.
2: For sure.
0: Now, it is Mother's Day coming up Sunday, and Sarah, you're the only mother among us. So, Damn. what should we be thinking as we look towards this civil holiday that's nowhere on the liturgical calendar, but is at the <laughs> center of our consumer lives? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, isn't it like, it's not, no, I feel like, I feel like it goes in terms of church attendance, it goes Easter is our biggest, Christmas, Ash Wednesday, Mother's Day, it's it's in the top five. I mean, everybody goes to church with their mom on Mother's Day, right? That's like a thing.
3: Um, and Father's Day, I always Father's Day is like one of the lowest, because like oh, yeah. all the men don't want to go to church when yeah. it's their special day, and all the women do. So what does that say? Yeah. I'll let you you decide. So. <laughs> Yeah. Definitely noticed. It's noticeable.
2: It is. That's interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, I love Mother's Day. I'm a mother, and I love a day that celebrates it. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about the current state of motherhood, especially because this movie uh, trailer, Bad Moms, has come out, which is hysterical. There's some adult content grown folks, but, um, but it is hysterical, but it's, it's also super sad. Like I'm kind of grappling with that too. I mean, I I can be kind of a Debbie downer about everything, but it's, it's like these moms who've just decided to revolt against the system, you know, like they're done with like having, like, it starts off with, is it Mila Kunis's character? And she's like today I'm going to do everything by myself. And and as long as everyone does what they should do. And then like the dog stumbles in and like only three of its legs work and everything just immediately falls apart. And, you know, she ends up in a bar with her friends and they're all just like, we're not going to, you know, be held to this level of accountability anymore. We're going to do whatever we want. And we can't be perfect. It's kind of the stuff you read in mom blogs right now, but I'm just at this point where I think like motherhood isn't even motherhood anymore. Like, I don't even think we're uh. talking about motherhood in this movie. I think we're talking about like amazinghood or I don't know what we're talking about, but it's not motherhood cuz motherhood is is not like what we've made it.
0: Right? So can I just can I just say something? You s- described yourself as a Debbie Downer. But somehow I don't think of you that way cuz you do it with such a sunny disposition.
1: <laughs>
0: it's you know, the you're the not a Debbie Charm, Scott. <laughs> You're not a dower, Debbie Dower by any anyway,
2: means. So. I appreciate Yeah, I just, you know, I, I want to see this movie. I'll probably write something about this movie because um, it looks very funny, but it also looks sad, oddly. So, um, yeah. It,
3: they, it looks like uh, Christina Applegate is channeling. Reese Witherspoon from Election, like the mom version of, like, the eerily robotic Stepford perfect, you know, mom who will essentially kill you if you turn on her. Right. uh, That part of it, yes, scary.
2: Which, you know, I mean, we look at it and it's like, well, no one knows anyone who's exactly like that. And yet mm-hmm. there are so many moments, you know, in my own mothering where I do feel like other mothers say to me, like, well, you're you're not meeting the expectation we had of you. It's usually in an email and there's like a lot of people copied. Like, that's usually how we roll like as moms to one another. Oh. I mean, it's just, it's brutal out there. So, yeah.
3: Well, you, you also wrote about that. Remember that incredible thing about blessed messes and how the um the new sort of meme is of to be like this terrible mom and to kind of celebrate how awful of a mom you are and there's there was something initially liberating about it because it's like we're imperfect but then it quickly became a law unto itself where sure. it was like well hold on a second it's i'm not happy that i have such a hard time keeping a cl- clean house like it would it would be nice if my kids uh, crafts looked a little bit a little more like pinterest like right. this is this is actually – there's a pain involved in it whereas this sort of false sense of, hey, let's just celebrate how awful we all are, uh, takes away the bite of what is actually in, in practice kind of a painful thing, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I feel like we don't have any permission anymore to just love motherhood. I feel like that's completely mm. taken away. So either like you have to be the best at it and that's what motherhood looks like or you just have to be – like totally, you know, throw aside any expectations culture may have of you and, and do a really bad job. And, and, and that's what motherhood is, but in, in on either end of that spectrum, no one is allowed to love motherhood and, and there's it's no freedom. So sad, Yeah. Because motherhood is like, it's just the most beautiful thing. I mean, and I say that, and I've like yelled at my kid in the past 24 hours, it's still the most beautiful thing, you know, it just, yeah. So Happy Mother's Day, like, love motherhood, you know? I mean, it's it's amazing.
0: Let me tell you something. When Trump is elected president, we're going to love motherhood again. We're going to say Merry um, Christmas and Macy's, and we're going to celebrate motherhood. Oh, my god. Because the politically correct culture, the feminist movement's taking away mother. We're going to get it back. Trump's bringing it back.
2: <laughs> Bring it back, motherhood. That's terrible.
0: We're going to have the most huge motherhoods we've ever had. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Huge mothers. I mean, motherhoods... Uh, now, it's interesting, Calvin. I guess he's quoting Cyprian, right? Uh, you know, says and it's a, a dictum in the history of the church, it goes back to the patristic era that no one can have you know God as their father without the church as their mother. Mm. Uh, it's who, but which you got to pair with Augustine's, uh, the church is a whore, but she's still my mother. No, mm. I, now that's what I was thinking about for like liturgical mother's car, Mother's Day cards. Like, you give your mom this <laughs> for Augustine, the church is a whore. <laughs> Uh, she's still your mother, but you aren't. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I,
2: I once got friends, uh, very Christian friends, a card from like a paper source, which is like a very hip, you know, kind of paper. release. And it was an Easter card on the outside. It just said Judas was a very bad friend. And on the inside, it said Happy Easter. So they do have those cards out there, you know? <laughs>
0: make these we should be this is we could
3: make so much money on these. this is a it's, great it's idea
2: time.
3: yeah i was i was thinking about that as you as you said it scott said like have a picture of you at the bottom of it too just be like happy mother's day right that's, that's disgusting though from the mocking cast exactly. from the mocking yeah cast.
2: Yes, I'll be your woman. Yes, I'll be your baby. Yes, I'll be whatever that you tell me when you're ready. Yes, I'll be your girl, forever your lady. You ain't never got a word. I'm down for you, baby. Uh, Best believe that. When you need that, I'll provide that. You will always have it. I'll be on deck.
0: So, moving on, we have, Sarah, you found something really interesting in the Washington Post that dates back to like the ninth century, right?
2: Yeah, it's this uh, the, the, um, this story, the key to these ancient riddles may lie in a father's love for his dead son. So It's this story about this uh, old, old wall from a church that they pulled off a hundred years ago in Sweden. And um, of course, a hundred years ago, archaeologists are looking at it and examining it. And they identified it as the first piece of literature in Swedish history. And what's really fascinating to me is a hundred years ago, there was a lot of sort of the nationalist movement happening in countries, you know, globally. And so they read it then as this like. Um, sort of Rosetta Stone of, uh, Swedish culture that this was going to tell them, you know, maybe elaborate more on Swedish mythology and tell them more about their origins. Well, so a hundred years later, we're looking at it in a completely different way and they're reading this stone the way they've read a lot of stones from that era. And what they're saying it actually is, is just these riddles that this father wrote to commemorate his son. Um, yeah, it starts that the, the stone actually starts in memory of Varad um, stands these ruins and Varan wrote them the father in memory of his dead son. Uh, it's a it's a really neat story. And I love one of the um, one one of the scholars who's looking at this piece said you know this was really effective actually in the way that this has been done because it's making us still talk about and remember and commemorate his son because of these riddles you know all these centuries later so i thought it was a beautiful piece
3: yeah but the the and um i just figured you'd send it to us not only because it's cool and it's swedish and uh you know it's it it looks really amazing i mm-hmm just like yeah exactly like, uh, that's you know the that we're big ABBA boosters here but um <clears throat> at the end they call it an eternity machine oh
2: because yeah because
3: instead of like telling stories and reciting facts that asking these uh, riddles brings people into the present and that um i think in swedish uh, this is what the guy the professor says at the end um Uh, The written text is like an eternity machine. Mm -hmm. It keeps us reading. It keeps us commemorating. And to me, uh, the jump to Scripture is a very short one. Uh, It's more of a a stride than a jump even. Uh, A hypothetical machine that could work indefinitely, driven by a power entirely of its own. This amazing uh, stone that's still speaking – and about a father's love for his son it, and the fact that it like after all these years it turns out it's just a bunch of jokes essentially yeah it's like yeah, yeah, these yeah. are my son's favorite jokes and you will continue to talk about him to the extent that you continue to sort of entertain yourself with these jokes right and i'm i'm also a, a big jokes booster too not just abba i like jokes and uh you're supposed to laugh <laughs> but um
2: i'm laughing just not loudly
3: it's uh i think it's a great uh anyway i, th- I was really touched by the ending of that piece yeah.
2: So
0: this this expert holmberg uh professor holmberg you know they asked like why would you do this right like why um why would you uh just have all these riddles instead of like uh is it he, they they ask were the riddles really the best he could think of to memorialize his slain son and it says this guy holmberg who's the expert on this stuff you know i guess is the Archaeologist here says so it's a very good question. And his theory is it's thanks to the technology of writing Varin, who erected this stone and inscribed with the runes, is able to keep us reading and keep answering his riddles. And while we are doing this, we are almost forced to commemorate his son. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I remember years ago I had a chance to sit down with Robert Jensen, who's like, I think America's greatest theologian. And, you know, it was one of those things where like I just I asked really stupid questions. And, you know, one of the I'm like, I could have asked him anything. I went up asking him something about the problem of evil, which was a sophomore question. And basically said, well, God had to have this history because he wanted you in it. Mm-hmm. And the only way, you know, the only way to have you in it is to have history. And the only way, you know, you can have a history with broken people is to have a messy history. And I was just thinking about that when I read that piece in the sense that like that we are uh, as we're living these broken. And, and yet in there and in the brokenness it, by grace, there's beauty. And as we look at and reflect and celebrate our own stories in light of the grace we, we find in Jesus, uh, we're kind of like forced to commemorate or graced to commemorate um, the Father, Son, which I thought is a beautiful sentiment.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not a great man. I don't claim to be. But when I meet my maker and he questions me I won't hang my head I will stand proud and strong and say I was a singer Lord I was a singer yes I was a singer of song
0: and now let's talk about grit
3: grit true grit um, uh, Another big uh, article that appeared this week in the Atlantic it was asking the question is grit overrated Jerry Usim wrote about it um, grit being this quality that you've come to hear talked about in, in like educational circles especially is like what do we want to instill in children it's not just information or even analytical skills it's grit it's the, uh, the they don't uh, give up. Uh, it's basically a code word for perseverance, and uh, so th- that people stick with things and that they um, are able to see see things through, and that that's actually the key to success, not so much raw talent. And so um, this guy Jerry, w- what he really did is he he zeroed in on the woman who's doing most of the research right now and who's kind of really responsible for popularizing this uh, this. Um, uh, this word, I think her name is Angela Duckworth. And, uh, you know, look it I think it, it originally started with, they had a bunch of, um, uh, army recruits and they were trying to figure out which are the ones that would stick with it. Like all these, all these people scored exactly the same or, or similarly on intelligence and sort of raw capability, but the ones who scored high in the kind of stick with itness you know that that 's what they were calling it grit uh perseverance they're the ones that didn 't drop out of the training program, and so that we need to um you know instill this in our kids so that we can of course become even more productive and successful um, i I'm sort of kidding there but that's that's really the subtext. But what was the most interesting about the article is it uncovers the bias between uh if we were to choose between someone who seemed like a natural podcaster or someone who has really had to strive to become a good podcaster uh 9 times out of 10 we go for the natural and this is what why uh um well we'll let our reader our listeners decide i would i would cons- <laughs> <laughs> um or a natural mother you always hear this oh you're such a natural mother versus yeah. those people women who have to really strive to you know it looks so hard yeah. uh you, you got these you got this dichotomy a lot of times and that it turns out we're Always choose the natural. We trust the natural. Something like the, the people were much more willing to invest in a natural at such and such than a, someone who describes a striver even though they'd achieved equal things. Anyway, this is where uh, it gets interesting for our purposes is um, – The uh, writer says that we don't like strivers because they invite self-comparisons. If what separates, say, Roger Federer from you and me is nothing but the number of hours spent at, quote, deliberate practice, our enjoyment of the U.S. Open could be interrupted by the thought that there but for the grace of grit go I. Mm. Meaning... If it looks like someone has worked hard to get where they are, we immediately take that as a condemnation of our own lack of work. And so, if if it's a natural, that means they're just exercising their natural gifts that we just haven't been given. And so, there's no comparison. But we are so narcissistic, or simply just wired for law and, and measurement and justification, that we would pr- prefer the natural nine times out of ten over the striver. And then uh, he goes on to say that you know, um, I think that. It, When you really get down to it and you interview all these quote unquote naturals, um, that everyone has been working extremely hard. They've just, what they're natural at is uh, hiding how hard they've been working.
2: Oh my gosh. This is like (laughs) the word, that word gets used natural the most, I think, when people talk about beauty. You know, somebody's Mm -hmm. a natural beauty. And, You know, what they mean is someone who's a model. And like, if you've ever been anywhere near the modeling industry, you know, it takes like four hours for them to get somebody ready to take a single photograph. You know what I mean? But we look at those people, and we think, oh, I'll never be like that. I'm not a natural beauty. You know, it's, oh, man, that's good.
3: Duckworth's basic admonition is embrace challenge needs a qualifier. Do it in private. Grit may be essential, but it is not attractive that this can make for confusing career advice. Try hard enough and you can do just about anything as long as you don't seem to be trying very hard. (laughs) That that doesn't fit on a school school, uh, mural in the same way. Wow.
0: One of the things I probably said like a zillion times in sermons, but I, I tell people, okay, let me tell you like a phrase that once you hear it, stop listening because it means not whatever follows it is going to be completely worthless and meaningless and is completely disingenuous i give anything to be able to play the guitar like you well i give anything except buying a guitar and spending the 10,000 hours it takes <laughs> but it's great because it makes the person that's great at the guitar feel good and, and it makes me feel good like it ever but actually it's the same thing it's like no you don't yeah, it's, you, i choose in the moment where you feel like Gosh, I wish I could do that, but I don't want to do it. You, you come up with this. I give anything to. So listeners, if you hear that this weekend, I give any, just walk away. <laughs> don't even listen to the sentences because whoever follows it is I give anything except exactly what it would take to attain said goal.
3: I think we've now got, we've now got two things we can inscribe on our stone, guys. We can, we about the, I, <laughs> the mocking stone, the mocking stone that will last forever. The cynical stone today.
0: But yeah, uh yeah, yeah, and also, last lastly, but not leastly, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, our bodies are our own worst enemies. True or false, David
3: Absolutely true. If you take this study of a uh, biggest loser, um, winners seriously. It turns out all, they like they studied all the people who've won that show, The Biggest Loser, and I can't. I, I've I've watched that show a couple seasons of it, and it really talk about condemnation. Uh, you're just a natural at losing weight. You know, no one's a natural at losing weight. It turns out, but we are naturals at gaining it back. It, they found that uh, the body, you slow down your metabolism so much that a lot of these people haven't been able to recoup. And in fact, even if you start eating huge amounts less than you were at your skinniest phase, uh, your body will continue to pack on the pounds. It's uh, profoundly demoralizing but also just uh, indicative uh, that the the fall knows no bounds. Um, I don't know. What do, what do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I think the tyranny of the weight loss movement is like that – You, I mean we are creatures – of the affections, right? If Augustine and Nietzsche agree on anything, in my view, it's definitely right. So, like, I think what what Augustine and Nietzsche know, contrary to like, you know, maybe like Plato or something, is that um the mind isn't the mind can't domesticate the the will, the affections, right? The will drives everything, and the mind follows later. That's why you, it's, uh, it's the big chill where Jeff Goldblum's character says a human being can get through a day without food or without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. So, so in some level, oh boy. you know, it's just true. That's what, put it on the mocking stone. Uh, but yeah. so like, here's the thing, like in, until like,
2: I want a kitchen sign that says that, you know what I mean? That's what I want a kitchen. I don't want any of these signs that say like, we're all nice to each other. I want a kitchen sign. that says what Scott just said.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Your, your 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 guests will love that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know like like you have to on some
0: level people that je- i know like they're actually a pretty healthy people it's because they love health right like they don't they're they just like they have a lifestyle that they like right and it becomes a form of play or recreation for them like, you know, right the people that uh uh eat, you know are, are weight loss obsessed it becomes a tyrannical exterior constraint right and yeah. it's not something so you're kind of it's a, you know, you want it, it you'll fall off the wagon instantly. I mean, it just doesn't take anything because, you know, unless our affections, uh, and this is sort of like, you know, good old Augustinian theology, right? Like grace, uh, can, you know, by mir- my miraculous, uh, agency of God, sometimes change, you know, our, what we love. And he, that, uh, if, if you're, this is why the law never works, right? Because, because right. if, you know, what's the the song love constraints to obedience So to hear the law. But to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. So, whatever it is—weight loss or spirituality—if it's by external constraint, you are bound to uh, to you'll fall off the wagon. It's just inevitable.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, I also think this piece relates a lot to what we just talked about in terms of grit, because we watch this show and they show some you know some tough moments for these people, like they're on the treadmill and the trainer's up in their face and whatever. Um, but there's always like a victorious moment, right? Somewhere in there. Um, we don't see the really horrible stuff. Like, I actually can't watch this show consistently because every time I watch it, all I can think is, you know, these people must be peeing blood. I mean, you know, like they are (laughs) losing so much weight so quickly. Like, can you imagine the damage that is happening to them internally? And so when this article came out, I was like, there it is. I mean, you know, like you can't do this to yourself. And, but we never see this hard stuff on the show. We just see this, you know, these, these glorious moments that they have. And, um, we don't see the brutality of what it's like to go home and to still be haunted by food in the way that they always have been. And then to have these literal like metabolic changes that have happened. I mean, my goodness. My goodness. Mm.
0: It's interesting because we're coming up on mother's day and thinking about, you know, the church's mother. Uh, and we're also have just passed Ascension day. And we're, there's, uh, there's one who forever has a body with scars. And I think, you know, th- it, that body is good news. Cause it, 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 it that despite how uncomfortable, we might feel in our own skin. It's promised that, uh, that skin is taken into the life of God. And one day we'll know what it's like, to indwell our skin in a way that, like, we're not shadows of our past selves, we're shadows of our future selves. Mm. And I think, you know, without the ascension, the whole thing falls apart. Without, If the resurrection is just some really interesting event that happens, but then it uh, doesn't really touch but our lives. But with the ascension, we have God mm. for us, Christ who has a vicarious humanity before God for us. Um, you know, N.T. Wright says to, to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God, and with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure, and to enjoy our status as creatures, image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. And I think so much of our striving is, you know, I mean, the, is the failure to love our limits. And I think the ascension invites us, the ascended Christ invites us to learn to love the limits that have been prescribed by us as creatures by our Creator.
3: That, that's N.T. right?
0: Good Lord. Yeah. N.T. right. surprised by hope. And that being said, I wish everybody a happy Ascension Day yesterday and Ascension Sunday. And we will come to you next week. Same Mocking Time, same Mocking Channel. Thanks again for listening to The Mocking Cast. As usual, any of the content we reference can be found on our website at mbird.com. And we love mail. If you have feedback, please send an email to us at info at And if you like what you heard, please uh, drop by iTunes and give us a rating and a review or share this podcast with a friend. And once again, we thank David Babco and Edward Hockster for their generous gift, which purchased some of the technology that is keeping this podcast going. As always, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.